pre 2012 was the golden age of social media for entrepreneurs and content creators because the organic traffic was just nuts. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. It's always great to spend some time with you here on the show, wherever you are, whatever you're up to. Actually, I'd love to hear when you typically listen to the show. Are you on a walk? Are you out for a run? Are you doing the dishes? Whatever it is, I'd love to hear about it. Just send me a message on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Let me know when you typically listen to the show. Speaking of this show, a lot of the guests on the show talk about what comes down to the concept of quote unquote content marketing. The phrase content marketing is about as boring as its definition, a strategic marketing approach focused on creating and distributing valuable, relevant, and consistent content to attract and retain a clearly defined audience, and ultimately to drive profitable customer action. As boring as that all sounds, it's really, really effective, and it seems like it's becoming the norm for the way creators think about promoting their products and services. But it hasn't always been this way it really only began to take hold in the mid to late 2000s. Enter today's guest, Brian Clark. Brian describes himself as an entrepreneur. He's had some very successful businesses, some that he's shut down, and of course, at least one that has failed. Now, in the late 90s, Brian was practicing as an independent lawyer, and to bring in new clients, he focused on writing articles that would get people's attention through search. What I call my freelance phase was really a solo attorney. All I learned was how to market myself, uh, which was interesting. The failed business was built around email newsletters, which in 98 were a big deal. Oh, yeah, they're a big deal in 2020. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Brian realized that he didn't really like practicing law, so he looked for another way that he could leverage his writing skills on the internet for another type of business. He tried real estate. And lo and behold, his style of writing to build trust with the reader worked in real estate too. But then Brian realized what he really wanted to do was just make a living writing on the internet. And so he started copyblogger.com. And it took off, you know. Um, I was basically talking about selling things with a blog or selling things with content. This was two years before content marketing had a name. Hmm. But that's effectively what I was doing and teaching. So when you know, everyone decided that we were going to call it this boring, but I guess there's no better name for it than content marketing. (laughs) You know, that's really what Copyblogger was about from the beginning. Since January 2006, Copyblogger has been teaching people how to create killer online content, not bland corporate crap created to fill up a company webpage, but valuable information that attracts attention, drives traffic, and builds your business. Both The Guardian and Advertising Age have recognized Copyblogger as one of the most powerful and influential blogs in the world. And Copyblogger started as a simple one-man blog. It was just Brian. The team never took venture capital, and it made it to eight figures in annual revenue and high profit margins without advertising. The company then created software as a service, web hosting, WordPress themes and plugins, courses, and conferences, all completely bootstrapped. Along the way, Brian created StudioPress, a WordPress design and hosting business, which he sold to WP Engine in 2018. 
and he created Rainmaker Digital Services, a hybrid services and technology company that he sold in 2019. All of that success has led to Brian being recognized as a pioneer of the now $44 billion content marketing industry. He's been featured in books by Seth Godin, James Clear, Dan Pink, Chris Gillibo, Michael Hyatt, and more. I, I think the thing I'm proudest of is all the people who, you know, if you can name someone that's got a decent profile that's been around since, uh, you know, for the last 10 or 15 years, they'll probably tell you they read Copyblogger or they, they probably guest posted for Copyblogger. And that, I think, is the thing that really kind of jazzes me up when I look back on the whole crazy ride that it's been. So in this episode, we talk about what content marketing looks like today, curation, creating software, how to prepare for the sale of your business, and why empathy has been the key to creating so much value for himself and others. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. And if you haven't already joined our Creative Elements listeners group on Facebook, it's never been a better time. But now, without further ado, let's hear from Brian. The first business, you know, I knew nothing, man. I was a liberal arts major with a law degree. I, I never took a business class. I never read a marketing book. And, but I just kind of figured things out. Back then, you had to figure things out by watching other people and, you know, talking to other people who were trying things. So I basically figured out that uh, instead of trying to sell advertising for my email newsletters, I should sell stuff. And the only thing I could sell was legal services. So that's what I did because I was running out of money <laughs> pretty quickly. And then the dot-com crash hit that killed the first business dead, which was a blessing. And it was at that point I was like, okay, I need to start a real business that's not law. And because uh, I knew I was doing well, again, if you can bring in clients, you can do well, but I knew I didn't want to be an attorney. I just don't enjoy it. So I decided to start a real estate brokerage, not because I had any kind of particular passion for real estate. It was just something that I could use my background as a credibility booster and I could make a lot of money. You know, it was just like clearly prove yourself as an entrepreneur type thing. And it worked. I was, again, really good at marketing, really bad at management, it turns out, uh, to, meaning that I just didn't know how to delegate. I didn't know how to create systems and processes. So I worked so hard, you know, because I was conscientious enough not to let things fall through the cracks, but without systems and delegation and all that good stuff, it just means you're working 16 hour days and I was miserable. So long story short, I was successful, but not happy. And I did another walk away kind of thing like I did when I quit the, the law firm job and said, I want to, you know, I want to operate solely online. I don't want to do these, you know, digital real world hybrids anymore. I don't care if I make a ton of money. I just want to make a living and be happy. I basically looked around. It's 2005. And blogging is beginning to grow out of its more idealistic phase and, and start becoming commercial stuff. Darren Rouse's uh, pro blogger was trying to teach people how to make a living from blogging. There were some other sites that did the same thing. And I was like, hey, you know, I can contribute to this conversation uh, because I've been using content 
and email marketing, you know, and in essence, building audiences of prospects in order to build these businesses. So Copyblogger, believe it or not, was the first true blog I ever started. I dabbled mm-hmm. in it several times, you know, just, you know, stuff that I thought was interesting because blogging was really supposed to be journaling to a certain degree. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. really like what it turned into. But with Copyblogger, even though it was my first official blog, I wanted a magazine more than I wanted a blog. And that's what I did differently at the very beginning, you know, blogging was supposed to be only about one person and it was about your opinions and maybe what you had for lunch. And instead I came out and started writing thousand word educational articles, started taking guest posters uh, as I, you know, grew an audience, you know, did everything anti-blogging, but it was really just like a digital magazine. And I think that's how you see a lot of blogs are these days. But really what I was trying to do Because, you know, I never, you know, growing up or even through school considered becoming an entrepreneur. It it just never crossed my mind. But that it turns out, um, you know, when I I, what I really wanted to do was write. But that's what drew me to the Internet. You know, I didn't want to write novels for New York publishers or screenplays for, you know, Hollywood Uh, The internet just kind of entranced me in the 90s because I'm like, I don't have to ask anyone's permission. I can write and people will read it and I'll figure out how to make money from it. Well, obviously at first I didn't, but then I did. And again, that's, you know, what we call content marketing now. I would give away free information uh, as a lawyer, as a real estate broker, and then later as a copy blogger, basically I was trying to teach these would-be bloggers, people who also wanted to write into entrepreneurs. And little did I know how difficult that would be. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to put myself back in the space of 2005, because when you're talking about, you know, personal blogs and being kind of a journal, I'm thinking of like Zanga in LiveJournal. Can you tell me more about what the landscape was like then as you were seeing it? And if there were any other people who were kind of thinking down the same line that you were? Yeah. So there were a lot of uh, the big bloggers back then were in tech. Mainly you had, I don't know if you're familiar with the clue train manifesto about, you know, human conversations. And, you know, this was again, kind of the kumbaya phase of blogging. Robert Scoble was a big deal. Mm. Steve Rubell, and uh, TechCrunch started at that time. Michael Arrington started as a solo blogger, just like I did. Mm. Took on a more of a magazine format, just like I did. And then he sold fairly early on to Huffington Post. Huffington Post was also an early quote-unquote blog. But again, you can see right there the difference between how Ariana and Michael Arrington approached blogging they they approached it as a media publication and that was very much my thing as well which rubbed some of these purist bloggers the wrong way the the only thing i can say about their initial criticism was they misread their audiences their audiences were very interested in what i had to say and that's why copyblogger grew 
so quickly. You know, I got nice mentions from people like Darren Rouse and the late Liz Strauss. Those were early friends and advocates for Copyblogger. But there were plenty of people who liked to hate on me, but they all they did was send their audiences over to me. Mm. <laughs> and it's so interesting, right? You know, you just show up and you try to help people. And you say, hey, look, I've been doing this for seven years now. It works, but you need to change your mindset about this and sell products and services, not advertising. And some people just didn't like that. But uh, the market, if you will, was ready to hear that because it's really hard to make money with advertising. You, you need such a mass scale. But you know, I mean, we all know now that if you five or 10,000 engaged people on an email list can make an entire business. Yeah. Talk to me about some of the signals that you were seeing that were validating your hypothesis about where blogging was going. Like when did you start to see, okay, actually this is playing out the way I expected, or maybe I need to shift this little piece of it. The signal was that people were interested in commercial writing, if you will, in a new environment, a new context. And when, when I looked back at what I had been doing for the last seven years before, that's how I made businesses. So I'm like, you know, this, this has got to be a match. And again, I, I never envisioned it would become what it has. And to say that blogging or what have you was anti-commercial, probably, you know, younger people or people who weren't paying attention back then probably just go, are you kidding me? I mean, it's just so, no one has any qualms (laughs) anymore. You know, it's just a completely different world. But if you, if you were there, you see how it evolved step by step, you know, social media didn't go mainstream until 2010. It's hard to remember the days before Facebook and Twitter being so dominant, but our version of social media back then were blogs, social bookmarking sites like Delicious, and social news sites like Dig. That was the early social media. And then it just continued to evolve. And we certainly use those new platforms. I talk about this all the time, how pre-2012 was the golden age of social media for entrepreneurs and content creators because the organic traffic was just nuts. But as soon as Zuckerberg pulled the bait and switch and said, oh, you got to pay now to reach the audience that you built on my platform, which we should have seen coming, obviously, that's when everything changed, you know. But again, if you weren't in the game back then, you have no idea what it was like when you hit the dig homepage and, and had to hold your servers up from the onslaught of traffic. So it was really an inefficient audience building move, but it was quote unquote free. What people don't realize is the amount of time we spent creating better content, you know, just one upping each other time and time again in order to get that viral traffic. So you attract a million people to get a hundred thousand subscribers. Now you can, you know, do Facebook advertising. And if you understand exactly who you're trying to reach, you can just fill out that psychographic profile and voila, low cost ads. You only get the people you want, but that's a very different dynamic than what we used to do. When we come back, Brian and I talk about the difficult competition that creators face today and why empathy is still our best strategy right after this. 
Welcome back. A lot of the creators I talked to on this show have referenced the 2010 to 2012 timeframe as when they were getting started creating content. It seems like those who did get in the game around that time did find a lot of benefit from organic traffic. So I asked Brian, what are some of the major market shifts he remembers in how content was created and discovered from the late 2000s to today? Yeah, that's a great question because before social media became truly pay to play, that's the bright line for me. That's when everything changed. But you have to understand that those of us who were building audiences before that point, we had the audience already. You know, it's it's just like the rich get richer situation. So 2010 to 2018, when we when we uh, sold Studio Press, you know, we we were already just audience rich, and you know, which allowed us to go from about three million in revenue to 12 million in revenue, totally bootstrapped, no investors, no advertising. Jay, I mean, can you can you even imagine that now? No, I'm wildly um, jealous. Yeah, it just it, it was a different time. So that's my big thing now. My whole position when I'm trying to help people is like, look, you got to be very careful about some of these people selling blogging courses or content marketing courses who are teaching you what they did in a different world, right? Just create great content and put it out there on social and then SEO. And, and I'm like, yeah, right. I mean, it's not the same environment. You got to adapt to... The new reality. I will say, as much as I dislike Facebook, it's the greatest advertising platform in the history of the world. And that's the problem and the benefit. You know, I mean, that's why it gets abused by people with bad intentions, but it, you know, it's it's the ability to target exactly who you want just makes understanding exactly the audience you'd like to have so much more important. And that's what I get. I try to get people to focus on. Who do you want? Right? Do you understand? It's not just the topic. It's not just wellness or whatever it is you you want to talk about. It's the type of person within that topic that is so crucial. And I, I found that a lot of people don't think about that. Can you talk more about that? Because you're very audience first, and that's not uh, attack that everybody takes and coming from a place where you were able to hit the dig homepage and get, you know, like you said, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. How did you even dial in who those subscribers were and which ones you really wanted to cater to? So back then it was really the topic and how I communicated with them. And I'm very, very in tune with that now from an empathetic standpoint. Like you have to be able to not only put yourself in the shoes of your ideal prospect, you have to be able to walk the path in them, you know? So, because essentially what we do is guide people. We mentor people. They have a problem or a desire and we try to take them to our solution to help them. So I, at the time, now I do this deliberately, but back then, it was just that dreaded word, I guess, authenticity. So the people who connected with me were the people who got my pop culture references and my kind of irreverent sense of humor, you know, and because I was just being me. 
while focused on them, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. You know, so the people who stuck with me ended up being largely Gen Xers like me. They were me because they got all the Prince references and the Depeche Mode analogy. You know, what I, mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to, that's another thing that I, I guess I was early in on the, the whole metaphor or analogy through pop culture, which got abused so much that they, they started calling it, critics would call it the copy blogger effect. Like, I'm like, look, don't blame me because people suck at making analogies. I mean, I'm good at it. So you can't, <laughs> don't blame me. But it, it was true. It became, it became such a thing that we kind of got the backlash for it. <laughs> uh, but, but it done well with the right people. It was incredibly effective because, you know, we talk about engagement and connection. But when you can deliver value to someone through a shared cultural lens, a, a time that you uh, both shared on this planet, that is kind of putting the, yourself in their shoes. Just at the time, I wasn't as sophisticated as about it. You know, I, I, I was doing the right things, but I didn't necessarily know why. To put kind of a bow on the content marketing part of this conversation that I want to focus on, what do you recommend to creators today who are considering content marketing or are already creating content who may be spinning their wheels or just aren't sure how to really get started in a good way? The toughest part about, you know, content marketing is just, you know, the conveyor belt, the the hamster wheel, if you will, you just create and create and create. And uh, if it, if you connect with people, it's well worth it. But there's way more competition these days. There's too much content. That doesn't mean people aren't interested. The more information there is out there, and and a lot of it is of dubious uh, accuracy, you know, I mean, we have a real crisis in content right now, whether in the news or what have you. People don't know what's real, what's fake, what's clickbait, what's quality. So um, while I would never shift away from the need for original content, a lot of what I do these days is is built around curation, which is the value proposition is I will do the work for you of finding the most relevant stuff related to problem or desire X if you sign up with me, right? And for a person that's just beginning, think about how much more powerful that is than, I know you don't know me, but I'm going to write something and send it to you every week. I mean, does that sound compelling to you, Jay? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> right. So I think, and, and it's not like everyone doesn't have imposter syndrome to begin with. We all have gone through that. So it can be very tough to try to say, I know what I'm talking about and you should listen to me. But if you say, I'll do the work, the editorial work for you to find this stuff, and then you insert your own writing within there, guess what? Over time, you're not only an editorial Hmm. or industry or niche expert, they're also reading your work or listening to your podcast or watching your videos, whatever the case may be. And then guess what? Over time, you've got all the credibility in the world. And that's why I tell people, you've got to find a way to get people to pay attention. It doesn't have to be about you. It has to be about them. 
And then over time, it'll become about you in their minds. And that's, that's the tipping point, and it's wonderful. That's really, really great advice because I've been looking around at some of these people who are doing curation, and the reason I haven't done more of it personally was it just felt like I wasn't building the same type of relationship that I wanted with these people because I was basically giving them a quick menu of things that I thought was interesting and they might trust my perspective, but they weren't learning from me necessarily. They weren't thinking about the fact that they were learning from me, and I thought that would change the way that that whole model would have to be monetized eventually. But what you're saying is using it as kind of a stair-step approach to getting in the door, starting to build a relationship, starting to insert your own voice a little bit more and more over time, and that being where you build the deeper relationship. Yeah, well, Jay, you're already a rock star is what you're really saying. So you're... <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm messing with you. No, um, but no, you've got a great point there because – when you when you say I'll I'll give you all the the you know relevant stuff on this topic each week or whatever, and one of those happens to be your article, I mean that's just I don't want to call it like a backdoor approach, but it's just again it's the value proposition. You know you've got four things that uh, come from other people's content that are and. And then, you know, then you've got your article as well, and you can even lead with that. But here's another thing, though. Curation can be incredibly persuasive because you are the editor. Like if you're the editor of the New Yorker or the Atlantic, right, you are a powerful person. Yeah. We don't think about it that way, but that's what a curator does because you're making the selections which reflect your worldview and your approach to the topic. You're also adding your own commentary. You're framing things in a certain way. So it's, it's an opportunity to really build topical and or industry expertise in a way that doesn't require you to write 10 articles a week. Maybe you only write one. Maybe you write none. But if, you, if you're doing it correctly, you're interjecting yourself into it regardless, right? I think it's a good perspective. And the more I think about some of the curation plays, it, it really drives home the point that there's just no shortcut to doing really good, valuable work. Like you can look at the curation idea and think, oh, that's easy. I just write an email, put some links in there, send it. And I'm doing the, I'm going through the motions and I'm, I'm doing what looks like the work. But if you're not really going above and beyond and and really understanding the person on the other end of that email and really giving them the best stuff. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, this goes back to the early blogging days where you would have link posts. They were completely worthless, you know. I mean, they were just easy and, and uh, you know, the, you did them because you didn't have anything to say or you didn't have the time <laughs> to mm -hmm. put something into it. On the other hand, true curation is its work. You know, now I will tell you the longer you do it, the serendipity aspect of just being plugged in to what your audience responds to and all these data feed, you know, from RSS to other people's newsletters to Twitter, what have you. And then you have themes that you're going to come back to time and time again. My newsletter further, this happens all the time. And then 
you start taking positions effectively with your original content and the content that you curate. And then I guess it's a form of confirmation bias, but then you start seeing things that support, you know, and, and if you're doing it correctly, you're, you're taking legitimate positions, right? You know, like you're following a real trend. And of course that trend continues to evolve and you're able to provide updated information that supports it because it's a real thing. I'm not trying to say that you only look for stuff to support a tenuous position that somehow supports your business model. I'm not saying that people don't do that. (laughs) They probably do, but that's not what I advocate for at all. I'm just saying if you're curating and, and developing editorial expertise, what you're doing is you're identifying trends and likely scenarios that will result from those trends. And the more those scenarios become apparently true, the more support for it is going to come out. And that's really when your audience goes, damn, this guy is smart. And really all you're doing is paying attention and sharing. Sharing is the important part because I can pay attention all day long to what's happening in trend X or Y. But if I'm not sharing with others, I'm not building the audience. Therefore, I'm not building credibility and authority. Yeah. I think about guys like Ben Thompson, who's been following the trends in technology for a long time, or Webb Smith in the last few years, who's been following retail. Like You really build a unique lens and ability to do some of these predictions you're talking about when your content strategy is really being on the edge of trends. I think that's an opportunity for a lot of people that don't even realize it because they may be drawn to the next big thing. They're staying on top of trends because it's just interesting to them. They're not creating content and that's opportunity for them. Some people like me, I look at that and I think that seems exhausting. (laughs) I'm interested in doing some things that are a little bit more evergreen because the idea of putting so much time every week into something that's at the edge that will not be at the edge two months from now and maybe irrelevant two months from now, it just hurts me. Yeah, no, I get that. And I'm obviously a big fan of Evergreen Copy Blogger. God, I had to say it over and over. They're like, well, when was this article published? I'm like, it doesn't matter. It could have been published in 1925. It's still the fundamental truth because people don't change. Context changes. After the break, Brian and I continue our discussion about human nature and the things that never change. And a little bit later, Brian talks about the sale of Studio Press and Rainmaker Digital Services. So stick around and we'll be right back. Welcome back to my conversation with Brian Clark. When we left off, Brian was talking about evergreen content. He told us that even though what you write about may be different as the context of our world changes, the truly evergreen aspects of content relate to the ways that humans and human nature don't change. And you can make an incredible business if you can nail down the aspects of human nature that are fundamental and then just frame it within the latest technology, the latest cultural, political trend. But see, Jay, this is, this is important. When we talk about trends, there are two components, right? Uh, there's a trend, say, augmented reality, but that doesn't mean anything by itself. What matters and where you contribute is how does this affect humans? Mm. How are they going to, what are they going to do with it? Right? What am I going to do with it? What can, what can I help you do with it? So the evergreen aspect of all of this is 
people, <laughs> yeah. for better or worse. They don't seem to want to change. <laughs> but their context is rapidly changing all the time. And that's what's freaking out the world, basically. So if you can make sense of that for people, you're combining effectively, I think, the evergreen with the new and ever changing. And think about that. You never run out of something to talk about, whether you're talking about someone else's content or you're creating your own. And to me, that's refreshing, you know, because I can remember those times when uh, I had a, I would write two long form articles a week for copy blogger and I had to get one out the next day and I had no idea what to write. I hate that feeling <laughs> because you feel like you just have to show up to show up. But when you're driven because you pay attention to something that's changing, and, and this is going to be the case going forward ever more rapidly every single year, like 2020, what, like what's happened in the last two weeks? I can't even recount that for you. Okay. No, so too much. <laughs> yeah, it's too much, but that's an opportunity though. You know, if you can stay calm, pick a focus focus on value to the audience and just try to make sense of the world for them. That is how you build an audience, you build a business, you become a personal brand. If you want to think about it that way, you know, it's, it's an amazing opportunity, but yeah, I, I think you made a good point earlier when you're like, people think curation is somehow just this easy thing that's going to lead to riches. No, you've got to be, this has got to be your thing, right? It can't be something you do in between episodes of keeping up with the Kardashians. You know, you, I mean, I, I think a lot of people dream of being an entrepreneur or a freelancer or owning your own business, whatever, but they think that means that they can go screw off more. And no, probably not. <laughs> but if you can find purpose and meaning in your work and share that with others, you can make just ridiculous amounts of money and have the most fulfilling life way better than watching reality TV. You know, your reality will be better than the show. Part of what you're saying that is an interesting framework for me to think through. I'm not sure I believe this, but it, it kind of came to me as you're talking. It's almost like human nature, core human nature, as we've known it, and as we've experienced it through history, plus current trends or, you know, universal capabilities. That's what creates culture, the combination of the two. One half of that kind of stays understood in some ways. The human nature side can stay understood. So if you are up on what's technologically possible and interesting right now in terms of trends, you can start to understand how culture is evolving and how culture might evolve. No, I think, I think that's dead on, actually. <laughs> I think you should believe that because that's, that's right. Like if I, you identify a trend like uh, I just mentioned augmented reality, we've been on the cusp of it beyond Pokemon Go for a bit, but until Apple releases those glasses, which are rumored to be coming next year, it's not going to go mainstream. So you just have to, the scenario is, is really a function of time. Is it about, is it happening now? Is it happening within five years, you know, one year, what, what have you? And, and that goes back to your question about what were the signals I was seeing about blogging. Blogging started, I think, 98, 99. I didn't start doing it until 2006, but that was the time. 
Hmm. That was the time. And that was the signal, I guess, is the best way to answer your question now that I think about it. The time was right for something that had been going on for long enough to where, you know, in any insider industry, people are like, well, I should have started earlier. No, you may not be late at all. Timing is really interesting. That's something that when you talk to investors, they ask more and more like, well, why is this the right time? Uh, I'm, I've been blown away the last couple of weeks how many Instagram ads I've seen about a like credit card shaped thing that is just near field communication with your contact information. So people come up to you, say, here, here, you just tap this card because now Apple just released like this NFC update, near field communication update. And that technology is now enabled. But somebody knew actually multiple companies. I've seen multiple different ads. Multiple companies knew that this was coming and developed full products in advance of this, developed ad campaigns in advance of this because they knew when that was released, they could start marketing that heavily through ads. That, that type of thing blows my mind. <laughs> Sometimes it's luck though. I mean, you, you, you think, okay, yeah, that, that's useful. But now think about it this way. I don't want your COVID business card, right? I mean, so all of a sudden <laughs> it, it hockey sticks. That parts luck, you know, we need to talk about luck a little bit here, you know, because I'm sitting here telling you, well, the signals were clear, Jay, and I made the right decision, you know, but, you know, I've been lucky a lot too. And, but I, I am a firm believer in that you work hard, you get lucky. Brian has talked a lot in this interview about empathy. And while Brian was building Copyblogger, he realized that there were some big problems his audience of content creators were facing. And those problems could be solved with better software. So despite not being a technical developer himself, Brian found a way to build software products to sell to his audience. And those software products created a lot of value for Brian and his readers. And people think that's such a leap, but with software, the key is not the code. The key is what does someone want to accomplish that they can't do now or they can't easily do now. And that's how you develop software products. So being non-technical is not, it's not a problem unless you tell yourself it is. The company that's now known as Basecamp uh, was called 37 Signals when I started Copyblogger. And I looked up to those guys and I said, man, I wish I could do that. So I didn't believe I could. And what, uh, three years later, I did. And four years later, I did it again. And then I kept, <laughs> kept doing it. But software is a worldview. Software is a philosophy. How should things work to get things done? I know that sounds kind of esoteric, but my first move into the WordPress space, which has you know brought me much of my fortune, if you will, was just me using WordPress and going, why can't I do this? This software, this open source software, which is free, it's awesome, but it's created by developers who don't think like normal people. And I'm a normal person and a normal person wants this, this, and this. And that's how we created the first WordPress design framework in 2008 a big draw to that to business users was that when you charge money, you can provide support, which open source does not. I mean, so many businesses have been built around that. Think of Red Hat. I mean, mm -hmm. it's Linux is free, but 
you know, business users don't want to mess with free software that they can't call someone on. And that just, uh, you know, it went from 10,000 a month to 10,000 a day. It was a rocket because we solve problems for ordinary content creators, which despite the fact that I knew more about marketing than my audience, and that's why they followed me, I was them when it came to getting stuff done, you know, to publishing, to optimizing, all of that kind of thing. So that first uh, WordPress product was based on my frustrations. Our second software product in 2009, and this is pre-Copyblogger Media when we combined everything and went for the moonshot, was someone else's idea. Sean Jackson approached me at a conference and he said, I have an idea for a SaaS, a software as a service in the SEO space that incorporates your philosophies on SEO copywriting. And I'm like, I'm listening. And that was our first SaaS. You know, that was another interesting thing. The, the growth of the SaaS industry among little bootstrap companies because of things like Amazon Web Services. And, you know, I mean, that that's amazing to me. There's so much you can do, but I, I just, I think, I feel like your question comes from a place of creative people that listen to this show think they can't make software. Sure you can. You may need to partner or hire, but you're solving a problem. That's a creative function. It's not about the code. Code just makes it come to life. That's a different aspect of it. I love that framework because you're right. And I think this is even more possible today or a shorter leap today than it ever was before because with all the technology around us, it's a lot easier for us to imagine as a user of whatever the service is, how would I want this to function? How should this function? Like it's just born out of frustration from a user's perspective. Whereas if you come at it with too much of a technical software lens, you might miss the whole point, which is just how does somebody engage with this and get the outcome that they want in the most? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I don't want to criticize the more technical people, the developers. I mean, we couldn't do what we do without them, but they don't think like normal people. <laughs> and, and, and even, you know, once you are an experienced entrepreneur, you have to bring yourself back again. It's empathy, Jay. It's, if you are removed from the audience, you will miss the mark. So you always have, and, and so developers and technical people miss the mark because they are removed from normal people. They can do super powered things. And then they start to forget that most people don't even understand what they're talking about, much less could do what they can do. So it's a real opportunity for regular creative people to go, well, that doesn't make sense. If you see software and you go, that doesn't make sense, then you just spotted an opportunity, I, I think. But I think it comes down to mindset. I think we say, oh, that's been done way too often. It's been done in a particular way, not necessarily the best way or not necessarily the best way for segment of the population X, or, or perhaps maybe there's just an entirely different way to think about this. And 
What is that? Is that a function of code? No. Soon AI will write the code, but it's going to rely on creative humans who have an empathetic connection to other humans to make their lives better, to solve a problem. I think there's more opportunity coming in the coming years than we've seen in my entire career. So if if anyone's out there going, well, you know, he started in 1998 and then he took a big leap in 2006 and that's all passed me by. I don't see it that way. For example, augmented and virtual reality is going to reinvent the entire web. The entire internet's going to change. You're at the cusp of a bigger change than has happened since 1994 when the Netscape browser made the internet commercial. Think about that. You haven't missed anything. Before I let Brian go, I wanted to talk to him briefly about the sale of both StudioPress and Rainmaker Digital Services. A lot of listeners of this show are building services companies and agencies, and I think we all have an opportunity to think more intentionally about what the end game of our businesses is. You may have never thought about what it might look like to sell your business someday, but it's an important topic to think about. So I asked Brian what he thinks business owners should consider when building their businesses in case they want to sell them one day. Man, that's a great question. I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask because I didn't really contemplate it. So we ended up selling essentially all the revenue generating aspects of Copyblogger, but not Copyblogger, which is so fascinating to me because that is the platform that made it all possible. We still have the audience. We just, you know, launched a new product to effectively recreate it, but we had to sell off two different, really we, we were two different software divisions, Studio Press and Rainmaker. And we ended up selling those two parts to two different people because I did not think with the end in mind because I never, it just, it just, I, I have a different mindset. If you don't take investment capital, you don't necessarily have to ever think about selling, right? I just like to do work that makes me happy. I never was like, I'm going to make an eight figure business. No, I, I just didn't contemplate it. But year after year, I took the next step that made that happen because it was right there in front of me because of the audience. So when we talk about audience first, they tell you what products and services to create instead of the usual way, which is, oh, I've got a great idea for a product. Now I got to find someone to sell it to. That's why so many startups fail. It's really not all that smart when you think about it. I mean, you don't really know that anyone wants this. It's just an idea. I'm not saying innovation doesn't happen. It's interesting. The uh, first three products we created, I create, I guess I created, were very innovative. And then as we moved on, we started basically, you know, doing things more that were more commodified, like hosting. Because our audience would buy from us because they trusted us. And that's a very powerful thing. And it's so interesting that, like to me, it's, it's very obvious that the copy blogger, brand, business, link profile, audience, like that's the engine and the input that created so much of the value that was sold. It's interesting that it wasn't viewed that way, or at least not to the degree that you think it should be. 
I just, again, going back to your original question, I think if I were, in, in, in fact, I think very differently about my new startups because, you know, I'm 53, you know, it's not the same dynamic. If someone wants to buy what I've built in 10 years, it's going to be a nice, neat little package with a story. And that's what you need, right? That's what investors, it, it's so funny because they're very sophisticated people. But they buy stories and they buy packages and they buy uncomplicated. And I know that now, having gone through the process. So the only reason things went in different chunks is because there wasn't, to them, a coherent story. To me, there was, but that's only because it all came out of my head, right? You ever, you know, came up with a story that made perfect sense to you, but everyone's like, what? Well, you got all the draft uh, pages that you, you can't show them. Exactly, right? Yeah, yeah, you can't show them how you got from point A to point B necessarily. So that's my advice. If you're if you're looking for an exit, imagine the endpoint and work back to where you're starting. I never did that. I just and I think a lot of people are like this. They just want to make stuff and make make some money from it, you know, um and our, ours just became wildly successful. And again, that was a lot of hard work, but there, there was luck. There was, you know, starting at the right time and whatnot. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm more seasoned. I'm probably, even though I'm still not fond of the raise VC, grow, 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 sell, you know, I, it's so, it seems so vapid to me. I like to do interesting work. I like to make a, a living, support my family, take care of my kids. I've been able to do that really well, fortunately. But it came, I think, from an honest place more than playing the game. But, but, it, but it, just all saying that now, I think about it all the time. Because when I'm 65, if I decide I'm just done, I want a nice, neat package <laughs> to sell because I know that's what it takes. Could you expand on what you mean by someone's looking for a story? Well, you know, stories are everything. It doesn't matter if you're, if you've got a private equity fund of a hundred million, you're still a human being and you want someone to make you feel confident that you're making the right decision. And stories are how we do that. You know, we, we put a slide deck to it. We, you know, we give them financials, we do all that, but, they have to have a coherent narrative of how this goes in the direction they want it to. And there was no doubt that both Studio Press and Rainmaker had stories. They were just different stories in the eyes of the acquiring parties. So it, it, it's not a fatal flaw. It was just me not thinking that way about telling an end game story that made someone buy the whole thing. So that's, that's what I mean by it. I mean, you know, you, we think everyone is different. People are so much more sophisticated because they're corporate or they're private equity or they're VC. No, these are just people and money. People are often a little, I don't know, stunted emotionally. So <laughs> you, you really got, you really got to, got to make it easy for them. 
The same is true. I, I talk to freelancers about this all the time. The same is true for someone thinking about hiring you for a service. Like ultimately, they, they're telling themselves a story as to why they're making this investment. And the more that you can validate their story, the better off you're going to be in getting that project. Uh, such a good point. I mean, all the freelancers and consultants out there, I mean, think about that. They're buying a narrative. It's all narrative. And this does not mean lies. It should be the truth, but it has to be their truth. It has to be their benefit. It has to be, you know, what are they really looking for? Are they looking for, you know, a freelance writer? No, they're looking for someone who's going to market the business, grow the bottom line so they can go home and not fight with their wife. I mean, I I know that sounds crazy, but you have to think about it that way because that's how people make decisions. They're not necessarily rational and objective when they walk in the office door. So play to that, you know, understand empathy. (laughs) We keep coming back to this. We have an unofficial theme. Or they're making the hire that they think will make them look good to their boss. You know, like it, well, that's the same. It's the same thing. You look good to your boss. You get the promotion. <laughs> your wife doesn't yell at you. I mean, it's it is, and this is what always kills me when people are like, "Well, you know, B two B people don't make decisions based on emotion." And I'm like, "Do you know the old phrase? You, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM." I mean, people make safe choices because they're afraid of negative consequences. So you have to present yourself in a way, you know, that that says you're safe with me. You're okay. I'm going to take care of you. And that doesn't necessarily enter into many proposals. And it should. There was a lot of wisdom shared in this conversation with Brian. And I didn't expect anything else from one of the fathers of content marketing. Whether you're creating original content for your audience or curating the best resources available, there are two things to remember. First, you need to know who your audience is. On a personal level, who are these people and what do they want? What are their problems? And second, you can't half-ass the things you're making for them. There's just too much competition to do okay work. If you think back to my conversation with James Clear, you need to do A-plus work to truly stand out and build an audience. Brian and I only barely scratched the surface on what you should consider when building your company to be something someone may want to buy one day. But if I could highlight one piece of insight, it would be this. Build with the end in mind. If this goes really well, what is the outcome? What unique value are you creating that someone may want to buy one day? It can't all be tied to you or it'll be hard to sell your company without you being part of the deal. So what is the asset you're creating that someone may want to buy? It could be a customer list, software technology, and so on. If you want to learn more about Copyblogger, visit copyblogger.com. You can find Brian on Twitter at Brian Clark or his website, unemployable.com. Links to all of that are in the show notes. Thanks to Brian for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.